Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. When do we take control of our lives and our destiny? We're a small country, but we punch way above our weight. Like, I'm filming now at this stage, to be honest with you. I thought it was one of the hardest things to do. It was horrendous. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Oh, there's a red carpet now. I tell you, he'll have no more now other than a red carpet out of the studio to match the red walls of the studio. Ross, Ross not here this morning. Still recovering from the weekend. Nice night, he was... <laughs> Delighted for Casey. Thrilled for Casey and Ross in the morning winning gold at the Emeralds. Over the moon for Lorraine on drive. Gold at the Emeralds. And, of course, two fantastic silver awards for the lads in the newsroom. Congratulations all round. Fabulous weekend for us at Cork's 96FM at the Emeralds Awards. We have the government, the cabinet meeting in town this morning. Uh, there'll be a press conference later and details unveiled of the National Development Plan, which is really just a he- reheated lunch from the last one, but a bit more thrown in and maybe a little bit more taken out. And now we think it will include a commitment to the Cork Limerick N20 motorway. Hello, we're talking about that's about 1842. And the Northern Ring Road, well, that's since 1874. So Cork might be a big winner in this. Hopefully we will. I don't want to be, appear too cynical. <laughs> yeah, no. Hopefully we will. Uh, Katie O'Keefe is out there and will be at the press conference and give us updates during the day. And if we get anything during the morning, of course, we'll bring it to you right here on the opinion. And also I'll be joined in studio shortly by the man who would be Minister for Health if the opinion polls went their way this morning and Sinn Féin were to end up in power at a snap general election uh, David Cullinan is likely to be the Minister for Health so how would he do it? How would he get it right where everybody else has gotten it wrong? It's kind of the question I'll be putting to him sometime after quarter past nine. If you have a question you'd like me to put to him or a topic you'd like me to raise health-wise I will do that. But first, I want to go to to Jessica, who... Jessica, I think you were taken... You went to hospital and you were sent home and you ended up back in there again. Much sicker. Good morning to you. Morning. What yeah, ha- that's right. What happened to you? Um, so I attended the COH on Tuesday around 3 three-ish time with um, a severe migraine. Well, I had lost a feeling in my left arm. Right. So... Explained to the triage nurse, got blood taken, um, wasn't seen until quarter to five the Wednesday morning to be told I just had a bad migraine. And I said, you know, I suffer from migraines. This is not a migraine. Do you know what? That doesn't explain the numbness in the left arm. Just so, go back to start with, this is last Tuesday, was it? No, Tuesday the 21st. Tuesday 21st September. So you felt unwell. 
And you went in in the so, afternoon, yeah? Yeah, I had ring my GP and they had advised me to attend a Okay, right. So was seen then at quarter to five in the morning just to be told, oh, it's a headache, we'll give you painkillers. And I said, no, do you know, the numbness, that's not right. I suffer from migraines. I've never experienced this. And they were saying, do you know, this is the severity. So I took their word because, you know, I'm not a doctor. So they are. So they knew best. So I left, um, was still no better the Wednesday or Thursday. Went to collect my son from school the Friday and I lost complete feeling in my face and I couldn't speak. So I was at my mum and dad's house, so we had to ring an ambulance. So they came and they took me back to CUH the Friday. That must have been fairly frightening, was it? Yeah, you know, the whole fact of the ambulance now, you know, when you have to phone an ambulance, you know, it's pretty... Pretty serious. Yeah. And was it that you couldn't, could you not feel your face at all? Was it just... I couldn't feel my face at all and I couldn't get my words out. But thank God, I'd say about 20, 30 seconds and I had got it back. I see. But my my face still felt pretty weird and so did my tongue. Right. Oh, you felt like you'd been to the dentist or something, did it? Yeah, it just felt, it felt like my tongue was swollen in my mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you went in by ambulance? Yes. In by ambulance, um, there were completely, there was eight ambulances in the ambulance bay. So I sat on a chair outside. So the paramedics brought me round into the front to the A&E part. The triage nurse had told them bring me round. That place was just manic, completely manic. You couldn't get a seat there. So they sat me on a chair outside the A&E doors. Outside, um, outside. I know, I know the area well, obviously. So you go yeah, in outside. the doors, and there's there's an ATM right inside the door. You go left for the coffee dock, coffee shop. You go right to go into any. So where do they put you sitting? No, do you know the new entrance to the new part of the any? Oh yes, of course. Yes, I forgot that one. Yeah, in there. Yeah, outside okay. that door. Cool. All right, Grant. No, outside it. Oh, oh, right. Okay, outside. Outside. Yeah, in, outside in the open, in the open air, area. Like? In the open air. Okay, okay. Because there was no seats or anything in the actual, where the pods were while you're waiting for the triage nurse. Sure, sure. Okay, okay. So I wasn't there long and they had called me in and put a line in and brought me into a pod then in the area, you know, where the vending machine is and the eye clinic. Yes. Where their new pods are, yeah. So I was sat there anyway Um it went on hours and hours and hours. And the doctor that had treated me the Tuesday, he had passed me, so I had called him. It must have been, I think it must have been about nine or ten that night. Mm. So he said, oh, you're back over. And I said, yeah, can you know, I had a CT scan. Can you please chase up the results as I'm, my anxiety is high from it. Yeah. And just, you know, you're just keeping track on things now. This is Friday evening, yeah? This is Friday evening, yeah. Right, okay, cool. So... He called me in to the actual where the nurse is to be and he told me to sit on the pod 11. So he came down to tell me that the CT was in and that I had inflammation on the left-hand side of my brain. Right. So that they were going to do an MRI on the Saturday morning. So I said, fine, what, what does it mean? And he said, look, we don't know. It could be an infection. 
we don't know until we get the MRI for clearer details. So I was put back out onto the pod and that was fine. Um, Awake all night. Um, Saturday I went for my MRI and I suppose that's when things kind of went really downhill over there. Um, The doctor came to me at half past three that day telling me that I I had had a mini stroke. Oh God. Um, You know, everybody could hear your business so then I got really upset. So when they did the MRI, they discovered you'd had what technically they call it a TIA, but you'd had a TIA. Yeah, you'd you'd had a they call it a mini stroke, is what we know it has. Yeah. Right. Right. So, do you know, I was kind of upset the fact like that people on your left and right and everything could hear everything that you're being told, yeah, that's, that's and kind, it is saying you haven't even told your family. That kind of is the way out in the yeah. You know, I thought that was that wasn't right. Like, especially when I had to go tell my family and my husband. Do you know? So, some the doctor was here with me, and um, I am a smoker. So, do you know, the last thing you want, you don't want to have a cigarette. Then, you know, and I asked one of the care assistants for a cup of coffee, and she told me, "Oh, there's a vending machine around the corner. Go and get your coffee." Hmm. I was just horrified. Then at that, yeah, do you know what the doctor just looked at her. Well, and well, well they do I that. Like they will send you. They will say if you can walk, they'll send you to the vending machine. That's that's always been the yeah. way. Yeah, do you know? I just thought that they're kind of they're kind of not. In fairness, Jessica, they're kind of not there to serve coffee. Do you know? Do you know? Yeah. Oh no, I totally understand that. And um, at this stage, I was an impatient. Yeah. Had you? You'd, you'd been. So, did you get a bed? You did. No, I didn't. So I was left on a chair all the Saturday night. Going into the Sunday, I had to cry to them to ask them for a trolley just to put my head down. Oh, you're still sitting on a chair at this stage? So I'm still sitting on a chair from the Friday day going into the Sunday. Crikey, okay. Okay. Yeah. So I said to the nurse, like, I said, please just let me put my head down. I said I need to sleep because the headache was so severe. Yes. And were they giving you anything so, for pain or anything at this stage? At this stage, I was getting paracetamol. Right, right, right. And they started me on um, a blood thinner. Yeah, okay. That would make sense. So that's what I had got at that stage. Now, the Tuesday night I had gone in there first, I had asked over a number amount of hours for a paracetamol. And I was waiting and waiting. I actually had to get my own and take them because I was asking over a number amount of hours, please, can I just have two paracetamol to ease the headache? And they said, oh, yeah, we'll come back. And there was no one coming back. And I actually had to get my own Panadol. Right, right, right. So back to Sunday, I had got the trolley. And then they moved me up to an overflow ward because they had no bed on the stroke unit. Okay. So that was fine. Um, but that was just, the overflow ward was absolutely horrendous. There was one nurse, uh, two max. Right. And how many beds could you see in, in there? How many? There was four beds in there. Four beds in there, okay. Yeah. Four beds in there. Um, everything now was kind of downhill from there again. I had to go for more scans. Um, they had fasted me the Wednesday, the Wednesday night for a scan Thursday. 
Um, they kept coming to me saying, oh, we'll bring you down next, we'll bring you down next. Now an emergency did come in and that was fine, but I wasn't informed till after four o'clock. So we're now... That we're, I wasn't... I'm just keeping track of the timeline here. So we're now on Sunday, yeah? Sunday, yeah. Sunday. And you were told you'd be going down for a scan, but that was put off a couple of times, correct? No, sorry, that was Thursday. So I jumped ahead. You've been still in now since Sunday, yeah? Yeah, okay. we're still in. So you were in on Sunday and they took you to the overflow ward and we're now on Thursday. So what was happening on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday? Um, I was just waiting on tests, really. Right, okay. And, and, and you were obviously... Because just up in the ward. You, you, did, you made a full recovery, did you? I did, thank God. Um, the damage is to the back of the brain... Whereas if it was to the front of my brain, I could have lost full mobility in my arm. I have you. I have you. But has all the feeling come back and all the tingling gone? And it has. It's just a bit good. tired, but I'll get there. Good, good. good. Do they know what caused it? Um, I had a blockage. Pain? I have a blockage in my artery, in my neck. I see. I see. I see. So that's what caused it. But thank God the medication has broken it down. Very good. Very good. Yeah. So... Your problem is, I guess, the fact that you were left waiting around in a chair so long. That was the first one. Yeah, and, do you know what? I sent home in the first place anyway, earlier on. Yeah. And I think because I had voiced my opinion to the hospital through an email and I did get an acknowledgement letter, but it was to the fact that, oh, we'll be in contact with you within 30 days. So when, when did you email them, Jessica? I had emailed them the Sunday okay. of being in there. So while, while you were waiting... While I was waiting, I emailed them and I voiced my opinion of how I was left home the Tuesday and not scanned. I see. Um, how I consistently asked for medication and had not got it. And how um, the doctor had come to me and, you know, you, there's no privacy there when, when um, a person is getting bad news. And then to be sitting on a chair and the chairs are just rotten over there. Is it the same old plastic sort of hardback chair that you'd get in a, a meeting in, in the community hall or something? So, no, they had all different kind of ones over there. Right. They had three, those plastic ones now that were stuck together. Um, I was in the small wooden one, you know, the wooden arms. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And right. the cushiony feel. Um, I was in one of those. They're not the most comfortable to be sitting there for 10, 12 hours. Oh, no, they're not. Oh, no. Yeah. And, you know, now they did respond back to me to say that they've been contacting me within 30 days. Right. You know, and then I did, I got upset the fact like 30 days, but I could have been paralyzed if not. Yeah, do you worry about what might have happened? I mean, you've been very lucky, Jessica. Do you you wonder? Yeah, I have because my own sister had a massive stroke where she was paralyzed from it two years ago. And, um, so I know the effects of what could have happened. Like my sister was in a wheelchair and everything. She had to learn to walk again. Yeah. And she doesn't have the use of her hand anymore. Right. So I do understand the do full effect. that it might run in the family? Well, that's what we're being checked for at the moment. I see. I see. Yeah. I see. So like I did understand and that's, I had voiced to him already that my sister has, has gone through it. So sure, sure. it does run in the family. You know, yeah. But like, I I just wanted to 
I just think it's a disgrace over there. Do you know the way people are left sitting there? And I'm I'm young, I'm 35. Yeah. But there's elderly people over there. And I understand family can't be with people because of COVID. I understand this. But like there wasn't even enough. There was one nurse, two max on our ward. I kept ringing for a nurse on the Thursday, Thursday gone, because I was so sick. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. And I ended up having the stroke doctor. One of the stroke doctors had given me the number for the stroke unit. I actually had to ring the stroke unit to get someone from there to come up to me Thursday yeah. to help me because I was so sick. And are you going to have a, a follow up now? Yeah, I'm waiting on a follow up at the moment. Right, 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 right. So, and then just with my GP and stuff. It's a scary time. It is, you know, and, and you know, as I said, like we're all human beings and we're des- we deserve to be cared for, you know. And I was left there for nearly over two and a half days on the chair after being told I had had a mini stroke, no sleep, yeah. and then to be just thrown into an overflow ward where the nurses aren't even getting to you because they're looking after three sets of wards up there, one or two nurses, yeah. and that's it. I know. What we've done, Jessica, we've asked uh, CUH for a statement. Now, they obviously won't comment on individual cases, but we have to ask them for, for a statement. I think the best thing to tell you, we're just delighted that you're, that you're okay. It's probably no, the best I am. thing to say. Good for, good for you. Yeah. You know, I, no, I, didn't, I am. By the way, no. I, didn't, I didn't mean to be rude to you when I said that it wasn't their job to make coffee. They'll probably run off their feet. No, but, no. I, I've, been out, I've been out there myself. And I, I know. No, the fact if you is, can, if you can I, did, two, I probably didn't explain that properly. Yeah, if you we can are, put one leg in front of the other, they'll tell you off for coffee, you know? Oh, yeah. No, the, the actual fact is that um, that statement was the Saturday that I was actually an inpatient. Mm. Um, we actually got no food that day. In a way, I'm lucky. My mum is only across the road there in Toker. So, yeah. you know, I was able to bring my aunt and my mum. Right. But when. When there was three of us, three of us there anyway, that they bypassed, and one lady was actually a diabetic, and when it was said to them, they said, "Oh, well, you were asleep." Yeah. To the other lady, I said, "What? What was? What was it with me?" I said, "I've been sitting here." I said, "You've actually seen me sitting here," yeah. and I got no response. Yeah, it's it's so it's it's, impatient, it's, it's like a, and it's like... I was bypassed. It's like, it's like a war zone out there at the best of times, Jessica. But listen, I'm glad that you've made what seems to be an excellent recovery and hopefully your follow-on will show that it's only a one-off. We hope that. Thanks for being with us on the opinion line. Again, delighted that you made a full recovery. Somebody was giving out that I had uh, said that it's not their job to make coffee. I wasn't having a particular go off of, off of Jessica. It's just that if you can put one foot in front of the other... They'll send you for your own coffee in a vending machine. That that's just how it is. They're that busy. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. Can we just talk? The opinion line on Corks ninety six FM with McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk; they walk the walk. See mig.ie. Let's get down.
We're back to the music. The Quartz 96 FM music panel gives you the power to pick our playlist. Click 96fm.ie now. 96fm.ie now. Take the 10-minute survey and you could win a 100 euro Just Eat voucher. The power to pick what we play. Pick what we play. Let's get down, let's get down to business. Join the Quartz 96 FM music panel. Find the link on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Or see 96fm.ie. The years have taken one call, like Jessica's, have taken 101 and everybody's story is their story, no matter how long they were there or how quickly they were there or what they went through. Everybody's story is their story and there are many of them out there. Sitting opposite me in Studio One, and this is quite a momentous day, it's our first Studio One guest uh, in several months, uh, thanks to COVID-19 and what it does. Uh, Sitting opposite me is the man who, if there were a snap election in the morning, there's a very good possibility that he would be the next Minister for Health. I'm joined by Sinn Féin's health spokesman, David Cullen. And David, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Delighted to be in Cork. Now, my my initial question to you is if to reel off some names: Michal Martin, Mary Harney, Brian Cowan, Leo Varadkar, James Riley, and many, many more. As they say, they've all failed. How would you succeed? Well, I think the the scale of the challenge is obvious and uh, I listened to some of the interview with Jessica and it's very obvious that healthcare and and the Irish healthcare system is not working for everybody. It's certainly not working for the 900,000 people at this point in time who are on long waiting lists. Uh, I checked the figures for Cork University Hospital uh, as well. So 31,000 patients are on waiting lists and about 10,000 of those are waiting over 18 months. That's one third of all patients on a waiting list in Cork waiting over 18 months either for a hospital appointment or for a procedure. Mm. So obviously we've had uh, years of underinvestment, uh, years of bad policies by Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Uh, They haven't dealt in my view with the big challenges in healthcare and what I would want to do if I was Minister for Health is to first of all having done the rounds of visits I'm doing which is to visit hospitals talk to health campaigning groups talk to healthcare trade unions talk to staff who work in hospitals talk to staff who left who have worked in hospitals and who haven't stayed for whatever reason and have left and say to them, we want to build a different type of health service Mm. I want to build a health service that works and there's two key components to that you have to value the people who work in our healthcare systems and you have to put patients front and centre because at its core, healthcare is about people treating people. Mm. So you obviously have to put the capacity into hospitals. That means more beds, it means more nurses, it means more consultants. In Cork University Hospital, for example, we have uh, 30 uh, vacant consultant posts. Mm -hmm. So over one tenth of all of the uh, posts which are uh, funded are vacant and then about 20 posts which are filled on a temporary basis. So is it no wonder that you have one of the highest wait times where people are waiting over 18 months and you have to put the capacity in? But we also, PG, have to deal with the big challenge in healthcare, which is to decouple the private system from the public system, mm-hmm. ensure the taxpayers' money is spent on a public system, build an Irish National Health Service yeah. that we can be proud of and move towards universal GP care. So you have to get we, the big we vision all look, right, even though as the Brit- well as putting the capacity in. Even though the, the British people would, would moan constantly about the state of the NHS, and they've got a lot to complain about, I guess. Boris hasn't exactly treated it well. But at the same time, we look at the NHS with envy, the kind of things that that you get over there for your for your taxes. 
But wouldn't it be better? You're talking about putting in 1.4 billion over two terms of government um, to, to, to change this. Wouldn't it be better to do something that was asked for a few years ago, but I don't think it's ever been done, David, to call in outside experts to having a, a root and brat, because we, we are big spenders of public money on health. There's a lot of taxpayers' money. Was it 18 billion or something? A lot of taxpayers' money is plugged into health. Have we ever had a root and branch value for money audit done of where that money goes? Okay, well, first of all, what we proposed is 120 million euro of what is necessary over 10 years to deliver the big promises of Shlon to care. So that's 1.2 billion that yeah. would be needed over 10 years. Yeah. That's to remove private health care from public ah, hospitals yeah. and universal GP. But before you put another Look, penny in, shouldn't we do this? The 1.4 billion euro in our budget is for the, for next year yeah. and is to put the capacity into hospitals like Cork University Hospital mm-hmm. as well. Of course, we have to do a review, but we've had a lot of expert groups look at what needs to be done in healthcare. All parties came together in 2017 and a Rochdus committee spent over a year mm. looking at what we needed to do and they came up with the Schlon to Care plan. Yeah. Then we had the De Butler report, which again uh, looked at that from an expert point of view. These were experts mm. and they set out a plan and what they said is that yes, we do need to remove private healthcare from public hospitals by mm. having public only uh, uh, contracts for consultants, all new uh, contracts should be public only. That still hasn't been negotiated mm-hmm. or agreed. You have to talk to consultants who are on these type A, type B contracts mm-hmm. and move them on to public only contracts and you have to substitute the private income in public hospitals with public income and then make our health system fair mm-hmm. so that Jessica and all of the people who are on waiting lists are treated on the basis of fairness and health need. So with respect I don't think we need more root and branch reform in terms of more reports and more strategies. We need a Minister for Health who's actually determined sure. to make the changes happen. Because you could wallpaper this office you could. with all of the national strategies and all of the reviews that have taken place. And you rattled off all of the previous Ministers for Health. Some of them have actually done some good. Um, as well, um, but we haven't made the big transformation that we need to make in healthcare, which is to create a health service that works for everybody, that works for the staff and that works for mm-hmm. patients. And you, you, we talked just before we came on air about nurses who are leaving and not staying in, in Cork University Hospital, and it's the same in other hospitals as well, and it's sa- the same mm-hmm. with consultants. Look at how the state treated student nurses and midwives mm-hmm. last mm-hmm. year. I met them in their hundreds. I did Zoom calls with them with mm-hmm. my party president. They were talking to me on here. And And I'm sure they were on your programme. And all they were looking for was to be treated with respect Mm -hmm. and dignity. Mm -hmm. And yet they are still waiting for a solution to be put in place. So it goes back to what I said. Value the people who work in the healthcare system Mm -hmm. and then put patients front and centre. You're talking about the the public only consultant posts, which, which is a fantastic idea. But already the Irish Hospital Consultants Association is saying that the new contracts are not attractive, that no one's going to take them up? Well, first of all, I met with the Irish Hospital Consultants Association on Thursday of last week, precisely on these matters. And I did so because, as you said at the top of the programme, I want to be a Minister for Health. Sinn Féin wants to be in government. And I want to work with consultants and with the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation and with the Irish Medical Organisation to transform healthcare. And I said to them very clearly that if I was Minister for Health, I will not buckle 
on public-only contracts because they are needed. We cannot continue to tolerate a situation where people who are at the top end of mm. the private health insurance market, not the vast majority of people who have the lower-end packages, mm-hmm. but at the top end, the Rolls-Royce pri- private insurance end, and get very quick, rapid treatment. And people that I know in their droves, and you deal with on your programme mm-hmm. all the time, waiting far too long. So they accept and they know where I'm coming from. But now, the point that the IHCA we, were saying to me was that the, the, the contract the public contract as it presently exists as we speak is not attracting people in. But there's a number of issues. First of all, if you actually listen to consultants, one of the things that that is important is pay. So these new public-only contracts will be at a pay level of €250,000 a year. The second thing is a work-life balance and the working conditions. And what consultants say to me, and this came up again at that meeting with the Irish Hospital Consultants Association, they spend a lot of their time battling for access to capacity. Diagnostics, for example, we don't have enough of it in hospitals, which is why 200,000 people are waiting for a scan. Uh, We don't have enough surgical theatre capacity, which means you have precious theatre slots. Mm. They're fighting over those slots and they're spending huge amounts of their time fighting with the system to get the equipment, which is why in our alternative budget we proposed €150 million this year and then every year for the next 10 years to put the capacity into Mm -hmm. surgical theatres, into diagnostics and give the, the consultants the tools that they need. So it's about directly engaging with them, which is what I did and my promise to consultants and nurses is that if we commit to put the capacity in and if we commit to transform healthcare, move to a single tier health service where people can be treated on the basis of need, I want you to come and work in our healthcare system mm. and you will be valued and you will be respected. That's the journey I want to go on. Yeah. I don't want people like Jessica who have, who have had their experience. Sure. And I'm also sure. pragmatic enough to know you can solve all of the problems overnight. It is going to take time, which is why I set out in our alternative budget the big reforms will take two terms in government to really transform from a deeply unfair two-tier system to the type of healthcare system that I would want yeah. to see. Look at the number of people. Again, the calls are coming in now, David. The, the, we know that there's a huge amount of admin, a huge amount of back office. We know that when the HSE was set up, Church was already overstaffed by hundreds and hundreds of people. That was part of the deal. It's an overstaffed back office, back office operation. Lots of duplication of work. You, you really should be shredding the back office headcount, realistically. Realistically, Well, first of all, if there is waste in the Irish healthcare system, I will root it out. Uh, obviously, there is a need for administration. And if you talk to FORSA, if you talk to SIP2Health, who represent a lot of people who provide that service, in every hospital you need backup. In every hospital you need administration. Now, if it is top-heavy with that, that's a different matter. And where there is waste, it has to be rooted out. I want to see any additional investment in healthcare targeted at resources. So if you look at our alternative budget, it was 828 additional public beds, 600 of those would be in hospitals, 6,500 staff which would be, some of some of that would be needed to open the beds that we want, but also a lot of it is in the community. It's speech and language therapists, it's occupational therapists sure. for children with disabilities, it's uh, psychiatrists and psychologists that we need in CAMS. We're proposing a package of measures for mental health of 114 million. Mm-hmm. Mental health is hugely important. I want to see universal counselling, I want to see 24-7 crisis intervention sure. in mental health. Everybody so does. Made, where, where would the money come from? Everybody talks about it, PJ. This is the point. Where would it where, where, how would, like, we know that, for example, the NHS is paid for out of taxes mm. and we too have a PRSI here mm. as, as a form of social insurance. Would we be looking at PRSI going up to pay for this universal healthcare system? Well, 
uh, next week our alternative budget will be launched by Piers Doherty mm-hmm. every single line item in our health budget which you have has been costed he will set out all of the revenue raising sure. measures and all of the revenue would, saving that measures as well and would, specifically would there be some an increase examples. in Piers how you yeah, pay for some it. examples we'll be calling for a solidarity tax on all income in excess of 140,000 euro and that would only kick in on any income in excess of 140,000 right. euro. And then specifically for PRSI, we've said that we would increase employers' PRSI only on incomes over 100,000, which brings in about 300 million euro. We want the bank levy that's due to expire this mm-hmm. year to be maintained. So we're not afraid to say that sure. where people can afford to pay a bit more taxes, Just they should that, to that pay for the services. That tax that you talk about need. for the earnings over 140,000, do you see, do you know who that'll, one of the people that'll hit? Is all those public consultants you want to hire? You'll be hitting them with with a tax after bringing them in and having them sign a contract. You're then going to take tax off them. Well, loads t- of tax off. Them. First of all, taxation is different from wages, and I know a lot of people who earn uh, uh, huge wages who don't mind paying more taxes if we get better services for it. I would have no difficulty personally, and I'm in a well-paid job, mm. and I'd have no difficulty paying a bit more tax if I felt I would get value for money. Yes. But we have to make a decision, PJ, and this is at the core of it. Are we going to forever and a day talk about these problems and have people from Cork ringing shows like yours with their ex- bad experience of healthcare? And it's never going to be perfect, mm. and there will always be people on waiting lists, and there will always be challenges. But the, the deep unfairness in the system, are we going to continue with that, or are we going to yeah. say, we're prepared to uh, have modest increases in taxation on the sure. wealthiest and the highest earners in society to pay for these services. Do you think money alone is, is what's needed? To do, it. do you think it's just money? No, I don't. And there's a number of things that can be done very quickly in healthcare and it just strikes me as amazing they haven't been done. A number of weeks ago I met with Robert Watt who's the head of the Department of Health and I also met with Paul Reid, the uh, Director General of the HSE. The reason I met them is precisely for the questions you're putting to me. Mm. I put those questions to them and I'm saying I'm serious about the reforms um, and it isn't all about money. We don't have an integrated wasting list management system. So mm. for example, if you're an orthopaedic patient in Cork and capacity becomes available in a hospital nearby, you can't get... Uh, access to that or you're not offered that slot because the system isn't integrated. We don't have a centralised referral system. Mm-hmm. We don't even have unique patient identifiers. All of that, that was proposed in, in the thing called the Higgins Report in, 10 years and ago. And all of it was proposed yeah. in Schlon to Care, which yeah. is why I'm saying we can have as many strategies as you like if you don't have a Minister for Health that will deliver. So I've already made it a priority that in those areas to make sure we have a modern healthcare system that works, mm-hmm. that's accessible and uh, that's joined up, I would deliver those very, very quickly in the first 100 days if I was Minister for and Health. And you'd increase to make taxes those. to do it. You, you, you've, you've no well, plans with increasing you taxes, to taxes And just so your listeners know, the vast majority of people who listen to your programme earn far less than 140,000 Far less than 40? And mm-hmm. most of them will not be affected, will be much better off under Sinn Féin. And we want to deal in the same way we want to deal with health, we want to deal with housing because the problems are similar. Look at housing where we have a developer-led strategy for years, big institutional investors, mm. uh, private money coming before people who want to own their own home. It's the same in healthcare. Private medicine can't come first. Taxpayers' money, public money has to be spent on public services and public hospitals and making sure that people okay. are treated fairly and equally. That's what I'm committed okay. to and if I was Minister for Health, hopefully that's what I'll deliver. Can I ask you about the controversy, the scandal actually, of the tragic uh, documentary last week, the RTE Primetime Investigates documentary and I spoke to 
to Leona Birmingham here in some length after that documentary. Um, David, somebody decided that those organs would be sent to Antwerp and incinerated. As the Minister, Minister Donnelly said in the, in the Dáil the other night, that went against every policy in the book. Every single one. Somebody, one individual somewhere, made that decision. Their name is either on an email, it's on a letter, an invoice is stamped, something. Would that person be in a job if you were Minister Health? Well, first of all, you have to establish exactly what happened. I don't know who that person is. No, but um, and let's imagine we did. Yeah, well, I, I, I think first of all, we'd, we, you'd have to see what the uh, HR procedures would be within the healthcare system. I do believe that we need accountability, but first of all, you have to establish the facts, PJ. And this is a very, very sensitive issue, and I want to deal with this issue sensitively because, um, for me to give anybody a cheap headline on the back of what is a very, very sensitive and serious story would be wrong. No, there but Leona, Leona but herself is, has said in both here and in the newspapers, she wants to know who made that. And, decision. And I want to know as well, which is why we pushed for statements in the door last week to hear from the Minister for Health what exactly is being done. So there is an investigation. It actually will be wider than uh, the hospital in Cork. The maternity hospital is going to look at all of the hospitals to see has this happened anywhere else. It's absolutely scandalous that a decision was made to send these body organs and parts with uh, all sorts of medical waste mm-hmm. to be incinerated in a facility in Belgium. But somebody that that went decision, against exactly. established policy, national, local, somebody went against established policy. That person's name is written down somewhere. Yeah, and that should be established and then every appropriate course of action that needs to be taken in relation to that individual should be. There are procedures in place in the hospital group and in the hospital itself to deal with that. It's unacceptable and it should not be stood over and cannot be stood over. So we have to establish, first of all, who was responsible. Was it uh, a process failure? It it seems it could not be because I read those very standards you're talking about. They were uh, compiled, they were uh, first brought in in 2012. They were serious, Absolutely. They're gin clear. And someone went against, some individual in. went against them. They were revised in 2015. Every hospital knew about them. Pathology departments and hospitals knew about them. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the person needs to be held to account. And Tommy Gould and others who spoke in the doll on this as well. And if holding, um, has, if have holding to account, surely should be a sackable offence. And if that's what needs to happen, that's what should happen. So I'm not afraid to ensure that there will be accountability where <laughs> major mistakes are made because I'm more concerned about the trauma that those yeah. families have gone through. They are the people that I will put first and I think it was just horrific what okay. happened. Lastly, just coming back to your, your policy document and your, your plans for health. Two huge problems this year have been maternity and the fact that people couldn't get in to visit their partners for months and end down to COVID and other things. And also, we've had a huge talk in the national media, bigger than ever, about menopause mm-hmm. and the availability of, of medicines for menopause. What, what, what's in your policy about that? Well, one of the things that we have committed to, if you look at our alternative budget this year, is to uh, propose 60 million euro of, a, of additional spend in maternity services for that precise reason because a lot of our maternity hospitals uh, need resources. The strategy itself, the maternity strategy needs to be resourced. Uh, we have a lot of maternity units which are not fit for purpose which is why we've provided capital funding to improve them. Uh, the issue of maternity restrictions is a really important one and Donegal O'Leary our t- your Sinn Féin TD in Cork South Central as you know has been raising this issue time and again mm-hmm. in the doll with me 
I'm actually meeting a group of uh, women who are affected by this today okay. and because it's, it's very important to me and yes the menopause is a really important issue so it's not just uh, treatments it's counselling support it's all sorts of wraparound supports and services that women who go through the menopause need and, and by the way I, I, I launched a document a number of months ago on women's health specifically looking at all of these areas because women's health is wider than maternity services women's health is all encompassing mm-hmm. it includes the, all of the issues you've spoken about and more uh, and obviously that has to be a priority as well Okay, we'll leave it there for today, we'll talk again no doubt, David Cullinan, thank you very much for coming in Uh, Health Spokesman of Sinn Féin Thank you The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM With McCarthy Insurance Group Call them now for motor, home, business, farm life and health insurance cmig.ie You guys ready? Watch out, watch out Drive home weekdays from four on Corks 96 FM. Hey, it's Lorraine. The big drive home is the place to be for all the freshest new music, showbiz news. We're talking gigs, all that's going on in Cork, and every evening, guaranteed good vibes. I want to hear you scream because you've just won a pair of tickets. Woo! So for that and loads more, make sure you're with me weekdays from four. The Big Drive Home. On Cork's 96 FM. And loads of comments in response to Jessica and a few good ones in response to David Cullinan as well. I'm going to hold those uh, for a wee while because I want to go to Rob Horgan down at Cafe Fellow. And coffee lover- lovers are in for a tough old time of us if you're to believe what you read in the papers. You always put that as a little caveat. If you're to believe what you read in the papers, it's going to be a tough time for coffee lovers because your average Americano is what? Between what? 250 and 3 quid now. Your average cup of Americano. It's going to go up. How much is it going to go up and why, Rob Horgan? Good morning. Morning, PJ. How are you? Good. It's going to go up a lot. Well, it sounds like it is. So if you look at the C price in the New York stock market this morning, which is where coffee is traded, it's at $2.70 a pound. This time last year, it would have been at one fifteen. Wow. So Brazil is the largest coffee producing country in the world. And they they generally harvest pretty much all year round. And their crop this year has been hit by a large frost. Yeah. They... Brazil is always accused of being the boy who cried wolf because they always say that there's been a large frost, but this year it's actually, it turns out to be actually true. Um, so the prediction is that the coffee industry will be short 30 million sacks of coffee, but the problem is a sack is 60 kilos. So right. we're, we're into talking of the billions. It's, it's 1.8 billion kilos of coffee across the world that will be short this year. Um, They'll pick up some of it with harvesting early and stuff, but the majority of it will just lead to price inflation. Um, and it's it's rolling into the perfect storm then because you've all the supply chain issues that we're all hearing about with containers being in the wrong place and the price of containers yeah. going from two yeah. and three dollars to yeah. fourteen and fifteen thousand dollars. So it's 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 across all sectors it's been hit between shipping constraints, lack of crop, and then just the whole demand increasing all the time. So so the average copper is is clearly going to go up. Will it be by a few cents or will it be by 50 cents? What will it be by, Rob? I'd, I'd see a cup of coffee ending up going up by somewhere between 30 and 50 cents, the Good way God. things are going. Nice. Um, like the, the other thing is when you go into 
if you went to the likes of Dukes inside in town, he's not buying sea price coffee. He's buying speciality coffee, which is hand-picked mm. and processed to ensure that you've got the best of coffee going out to your customers. Like, where do your and coffees come from? I mean, I'm not buttering you up here now, but your coffee is some of the best out there. Like, where is it coming from? Uh, we would we would have coffee from literally across all the coffee growing regions. So the majority of the coffee that we would do would be Brazil and Colombia. But we were lucky enough to win a silver in Blas for our El Salvador coffee at the weekend. Yeah, well um, done. And if you, thank you, if you look at El Salvador, they only harvest from July to September. So our, our El Salvadorian coffee is contracted ahead for next year already. So we know what the price of that is now right. before it lands. That's like hedge buying, um, isn't it? You're, 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 you're buying way in advance. Uh, we're not that, that clever with it, but we are, we are, we, we, we have no choice, PJ, to, to ensure that we've supply. We've no mm. choice but to predict what we, we're going to need for the next 12 months and try and buy it as far ahead as we can. Mm. Um, that's just the way the market is. And, and of uh, course, as well as the, like the, the global su- supply chains, let, let's call a spade a spade here, they're goosed at the moment and it's only worse they're going to get in the short term. So that's going to affect everything. Literally everything. There's one large port in Asia at the moment and the cranes that we see operating down Tivoli, where we have two of them, um, that you'd see if you were heading down the marina, they have 25 of them. And at the moment, there's only five of them working um, between COVID restrictions, COVID breakouts, so that's one of the largest ports in Asia. And the knock-on effect of that is that it's only the high-value products are coming out. So even your coffee cup, if you're going for the takeaway cup, if you haven't gone to a keep cup, mm. there's supply issues with those. So you'll go into places and see that they don't have their branded cups anymore or they're using a different style of cup. Um, so that, that whole supply chain piece is hitting literally everything, your takeaway packaging, um, the cups, our coffee packaging is, is delayed. So we're chasing to stay ahead of packaging all the time because all that is produced in Asia as well. So it is, it, is, it is going to go up, hopefully not too much, but we can take it that it's going up and it's, it's just the way the globe is functioning at the moment, or not, as it were. Rob Horgan from Café Velo, thank you and congratulations on yet another award at the weekend. Your cup of Americano is going to go up between 30 and 50 cents if present situation continues, as in the global supply chain is goosed, there's been a massive frost in Brazil, and the price of coffee on the market has gone through the roof. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie the lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Your comments and your observations on Jessica's story and on David Cullinan. I'm holding on to them for a wee while. Uh, bring you a bunch of them a little bit later on. But I must say, I went down yesterday. I told you I was going. I went down yesterday's Mahan Point with the Umfla and we went to see No Time to Die. Ah, lads, it's a belter. An absolute unit. 
of a movie. It's just fabulous. Two hours and 43 minutes. It, it goes like a ride on the dodgems. It's just massive. What a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful film. And at the very end of it, at the very end of it, you get James Bond will return. Now, I'm not going to give any spoilers here, but it's going to be some return. Depending on who will be James Bond next, it's going to be some return. But a fabulous, fabulous movie. And there was big crowds in to watch it yesterday. I really enjoyed it. I had gone out and gone straight back in again. To, to see it a second time it was just brilliant really really enjoyed it but but uh, Trina got on to us and Trina I had no idea I knew that the, the lad who was doing his best to help us I, I knew that there was something about him um, and that he really was doing his best to help us and to be fair to him he actually did point me in the right direction I just twigged to double check with an actual staff member um, but but yeah he he was right when he says Trina was on to say thank you for taking the time to talk to my son Jack yesterday in Mahan Point he's always talking about you and would love to have actually met you I had no idea and I had a mask on me anyway Trina so, but obviously he recognised me without the mask he was beaming when he came home uh, just to explain Jack has autism and ADHD so thank you so much for that I was going in and this young nice young lad wearing a Mahan Point mask and uh, he had a bag bag pack on him so I thought he was just a staff member going home or something came up and I was looking to know where we'd pre- prepaid for everything the ticket the popcorn the, you know and he was sending me to a queue and the, the queues are a little confusing when the place is busy to be fair and he was sending me down one way and I just wasn't 100% sure and then I showed him my QR code on my phone he said you probably should have another QR code and I said no I only got the one and he was really doing his level best to make sure I went to the right place and he was spot on because when he was gone, I, it, it tweaked in my head uh, that maybe I should check. And when I did ask an actual staff member, he just smiled. And I said, that lad told me, yep, he's right. So Trina, uh, he's a lovely lad. And uh, and he really was doing his level best to help me yesterday. And to be fair, he, he knew what he was talking about as well. So thanks. And hello to Jack. And you can tell him that I was delighted with his help. And he really was very, very helpful. Thanks for that. 1850-715-996. It's a fabulous movie. Oh, God, it's a fabulous movie. Now, before 10, we're talking about the price of coffee. And that it will go up because of various global issues. What about the electricity to boil the kettle, though? Will we even have that? Will we have the juice to boil the kettle? Because last week, the Minister for Energy, Eamon Ryan, Environment, Climate Action and Communications, but it all comes under his umbrella, he said that uh, he cannot be absolutely certain there will be no power cuts this winter. He said electricity supply is tight, but the government will be able to manage it. Now, earlier in the year, there was a, a warning that we could face rolling blackouts due to energy shortages in the middle of winter. Airgrid, one of the suppliers, has said it won't be able to generate enough electricity to meet the rapid increase in, in demand. Now, some of this is down to data centres and, and hoovering up power. But there's two massive generators currently offline, and I think that might solve... A couple of problems when they come back. Uh, Dr. Paul Dean is the researcher of energy at UCC. Paul, good morning to you. Good morning. Is there a possibility I won't have uh, the electricity to boil a kettle of a morning at half six? Yeah, it's 
been an incredible couple of months, uh, PJ, hasn't it? You know, and even just reading the headlines and just listening to you talk there about the comments from Minister Ryan, they're the kind of things you'd expect to hear in a kind of developing country or a kind of a, a you know, a country, certainly nothing like Ireland, but a modern economy. And particularly, PJ, we've, we've had such an incredible reliability of electricity over the last 20 years or so. I yeah. guess many people wouldn't even remember when the last time we had a power outage, you know. Now we get power outages when storms and trees fall down and stuff. But as you mentioned there, the crisis that we're having at the moment is a reduced ability to generate electricity and as you said there's two huge power stations down at the moment one just down the road in Whitegate and and the other one is a big appetite for consuming electricity now when those two things happen in a power system Minister Ryan uses the word tight but you know that gets really concerning and really worrying now looking at the winter uh, PJ look for your listeners I think it's important if we get those two big power plants back up in line and all the all the the the, 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 the information that we have on at the moment is that we will hopefully have them back up in line one in October and the other in November mm. if we get those two up uh, we should be all right for this winter why are, why are they offline Paul so big power plants are like cars you know they're like old cars they break down every so often and I suppose what was really unusual about these two outages you know typically you might have one prolonged outage over a year and that's unexpected and it's surprising but to have two prolonged outages that were surprising that happened and overlapped with each other PJ that really kind of uh, upped the ante in terms of the concern and the level of, of stress coming on the system and the type of power plants that, that broke down as well uh, PJ they're, they're, they're very efficient they burn natural gas so they're they produce a lot um, uh, less emissions. They're very flexible, but they're very complex. They take a long time to fix. They need complex crews, complex mm. bits of equipment. And so it's taken, you know, five to six months to get them fixed. And if we get them up and running for uh, winter, and of course the caveat there, PJ, is that they stay running, that would take a huge amount of pressure off us for this winter. But as you said, then there's the next couple of winters that we need to think about as well now. Why are we so concerned? Assuming that they, they came back online and we got through this winter, why would we be so concerned going going down to future winter. Is it because we need to look at cutting carbon and therefore cutting carbon means cutting generation through fossil fuels? So, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to green ourselves, but could we leave ourselves in the dark because of our efforts to green ourselves? Yeah, yeah. And look, we need to reduce our emissions, you know, and that's fine. You know, in Ireland, we're very lucky. We know every country needs to play to its strengths in terms of reducing emissions. And in Ireland, look, we have lots of weather, we have lots of wind, we have lots of ocean, and we have a bit of sun as well that can help us from that. Now, renewables are very good for reducing emissions. And they do that, PJ, by by, uh, reducing the need to run fossil fuel power plants, but they don't reduce the need to build fossil fuel fossil fuel power plants, particularly over the next 10 to 12 years or so. And that's kind of what we haven't been doing in Ireland, I suppose, in the last number of years. You mentioned correctly data centres there, PJ. Look, half of the electricity growth since uh, since 2015 uh, has been due to data centres. So our demand is growing. Yes, we're building renewables, and that's been great for reducing our emissions. But at the same time, we just haven't been building power plant. And part of the reason there... Uh, there's just no appetite really from an investor's perspective to build PowerPoint, power plant. You know, we're, we're almost caught between two worlds. You know, we're, we're a world that wants to move away from fossil fuels and investors don't want to invest in power plant. But we're a world, unfortunately, that still needs fossil fuel plants. And that's something that, that we're finding out right now. And, and that's where that's kind of our, our conundrum. And mm-hmm. now what we need to solve that, PJ, is the markets really need to step up. They, make, they need to make it financially worthwhile to invest in power plants. And, and that's what the regulator and what air grids, they're the people who, who operate the power system, that's mm. what they're trying to work on at the moment. Like if you take the, two, the, the massive one down here at Whitegate the closest to home, like would yeah. we ever get to a point, Paul, where we had 
enough energy generated from sustainable means, shall we say, that we would only ever say use Whitegate as a winter backup. Yeah, and that would be the long-term plan, really, PJ. But we need to just be careful and manage our expectations on how long that will take to yeah, happen. Yeah, because there are those likely, who believe we can do it by 2030, can we? No, no, we won't be able to do it by 2030. And look, to be honest, a lot of the analysis that we do up here in UCC and, 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 and across Ireland from other universities would show that we're still going to need a high level of power plants, of fossil fuel power plants in 2030s. But as you said, the trick there then is to figure out how to use them as little as possible. Yeah. Now, the great thing about renewables is that, look, we've got tons of it in, in, uh, in Ireland, onshore and both offshore. But the challenge then, PJ, is what happens if you hit a week where it just isn't windy or if it isn't sunny? You know, what do you do then? What do you do mm. then? And the key there is storage. Now, you know, a lot of your listeners will be very familiar with Elon Musk and batteries and all this yes. kind of stuff. And that's very exciting. Now, batteries are great for storing electricity for four to five hours at a max, not four to five days. Uh, so we need some kind of breakthrough in large scale energy storage. Because what I see in a lot of new houses now is they have these photovoltaic panels, yeah. which don't need bright sunlight. They work off the, the ordinary light. This kind of daylight works but we can't store that can we no, you can always do things, you know, as far from an engineering perspective, things are always possible, but from an economic perspective, it's not always worthwhile. And that's the challenge with batteries at the moment and storing energy or storing electricity is just expensive. So while it's conceptual, it's just not, conce- it's not commercially worthwhile. Mm. Now, we are going to see a lot more um, uh, homes in Ireland put solar panels up in their roofs over the next few years. And that's a good thing, PJ, because look, the cost of panels are actually coming down massively in the last, yeah. in, in the last number of years. And look, it is great to, to be able to generate generate your own electricity. It does a couple of things. Number one, it will reduce your electricity bill. It provides yes. jobs for local installers and local builders. And as well, it kind of puts you in touch with the amount of electricity you're generating and you get a good feel in for, you know, when you can and when you can't use electricity. And uh, and so it's a good thing. And what a lot of those families are doing at the moment, PGA, and it makes sense if you install solar panels, instead of installing big, expensive batteries, just connect it to your hot water tank and heat water. So you yes. store energy like that. And yeah. for all Irish households, hot water is a good thing. Indeed, indeed. So, not as bad as we were worried about for the winter, given that we get Whitegate and what's the other one called again? Uh, Huntstown up in Dublin, PJ. Once we get the two of them back online, we should be okay for this winter. But long term, are are you saying to me, Paul Dean, that the green dream of being... Completely done, done with, foss, with fossil fuel generation by 2030. It's not going to happen. Look, look, I suppose there's, there's ideology and there's analysis. Look, we all like to, I, I'd love to tell you and your listeners that we can all live in a world without fossil fuel mm-hmm. over the next number of years. But look, it's not going to happen. It's a lovely narrative. It's a lovely ideology. But look, all the, uh, all the analysis and simulations and modeling that we do here in UBC tells us that we need to manage our expectations. It's going to take time. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, it's not always going to be easy. Now, we can move away from fossil fuels, but we yes. just can't stop using them. And it's yes. going to be at least yeah. one to two days. Decades, PJ. And the situation will be that, say, Whitegate, the one we all know so well, Whitegate would, would maybe, what, sit idle, being serviced until probably, what, October, November, then yep. juice up for the winter, 
and he's off again in the spring. That That's the first stage we need to get to, is that it? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And look, when it comes back on, we'll be going full tilt because at the moment, what we're doing, uh, PJ, we've kind of done a kind of a Lazarus effect with, with a lot of the older power stations, Money Point up there in Clare, which we thought we could shut down, which we thought we wouldn't need anymore. Now, Money Point uses coal, and coal is very polluting for the atmosphere, um, and so it's not great for our emissions. But actually, we're kind of thankful for Money Point at the moment because it's allowing us to, to, to keep the lights on. So Money Point was almost brought out of retirement and, and it's been used uh, um, uh, quite frequently at the moment. But when those natural gas plants come back online, mm. they'll reduce the need for things like, like Money Point. And really, we want to use power plants like Money Point, which use coal. We want to use, we want to use those as little as, as little possible. possible. Dennis, D- D- uh, Daniel asks, lastly, uh, nuclear power, ever going to be an option for us? Someone said to me recently on this programme, Paul, that the best way to do the electric car and the best way to do data centres is build a couple of small nuclear power plants just just to look after that. Is that ever an option for Ireland? Uh, not at the moment, BJ. Look, nuclear always comes up, I suppose, during these kind of energy crunches. And there's a couple of things we just need to bear in mind. Look, traditional nuclear, like like Sellafield, is just too large for a small a power system like Ireland because look at the moment we've two small power plants went down and they're broke and the country is almost at its knees in terms of energy crunch if you had a very massive power plant that went off for maintenance or just broke we'd have that problem again so you have to build backup very large backup for nuclear uh, as well so nuclear though could be an option for the next decade and what we're really looking at there is new modular designs which would be smaller so you could ship them in so they wouldn't be built in, in Ireland mm. uh, PJ you know same like jumbo jets you know we didn't build the jumbo jets in the airports we built them in centralised locations so you, you, the idea would be you'd ship in small uh, reactors into countries like Ireland you'd have lots of them around the place and then you get someone to maintain them now the challenge there again the difference between ideology and reality those things aren't commercially available yet it's about another 10 to 15 years and of course then the big challenge or big question for Ireland is would people feel safe living near them or would they politically support them as well PJ oh yeah we'll be back there again thank you very much Dr Paul Dean energy researcher at UCC once we get Huntstown and once we get Whitegate back generating again we should be alright for the winter long term not so much can we just talk the opinion line on Corks 96 FM with McCarthy Insurance Group call them now for motor home business farm life and health insurance cmig.ie Corks 96 FM so I spent some time talking to David Cullinan health spokesman for Sinn Féin before 10 o'clock about his idea were he to be Minister for Health tomorrow morning how he would change things how he would address for example the kind of problems that Jessica had Jessica described her experience as at CUH uh, over the last week or so. A couple of other reactions. Shona says, good morning, Peter. HSE has to be disbanded. It's not fit for purpose. Too many in there on high salaries and roles that are futile. Then uh, I waited and I see H for a full day. I was extremely sick. I had no food. I was sitting on a hard chair wearing a mask. I could sit there no longer. I went up to reception said I was going home. I was seen shortly afterwards. Sitting on hard chairs is not right when you're sick. And Valerie, all I'm hearing is what the guy's knocking on the door promise. Who's paying for it? Well, I did go into the who's paying for thing with him. The one thing I noticed was he wants to hire all of these public-only consultants, which is a wonderful idea, and he wants to pay them a very decent salary. 250 grand is a very decent salary in anybody's language. But then he wants to increase taxes on anything above 140. So he'll be giving them at one hand and... Taken with the other. 
Uh, Bear was listening to um, David Cullen now. Bear, I think you used to work in the HSE up to a few years ago. Is that right? Good morning to you. Yeah, I took redundancy in 2010. Okay, okay, okay. So what do you make of what he's saying? A fairy tale. Really? Because the HSE South uh, was reconfigured in the middle of the, the noughties. Yes. Which meant that they put everything to CUH and they upgraded CUH to a Trauma 1. That's right. So a Trauma 1 means that CUH takes all the serious cases, road traffic accidents and what have you, from the whole of the HSE South. Yes. That means Waterford, Kerry, Tipperary. You could even go further afield. It's yeah. kind of split. Yeah. You know, everything gets funneled in there after five o'clock. So that yeah. means yeah. when those patients come, obviously they jump ahead of the queue and they have to have a bed and they have to have all that. So then there's a knock on effect. Mm. So, as I was saying, there was supposed to be a second hospital built in Cork to balance CUH. Yeah. That would have taken. That would have been able to take the mercy. I would try their level best, but it's not big enough. Yeah. Because obviously our population has increased and the bed numbers have dropped. And Is this the elective hospital now where all of elective work would be done there rather than... It's not even elective. But right. the thing is, we have only one full 24-hour accident emergency in Cork. Yes. Where you can actually walk into because obviously... St. Mary's campus closes at 6, I think, and the Mercy closes at 8. Now, I could be slightly out there to walk in, you know, walk in yes. emergencies. So that means all the other walk-in emergencies, anything that happens after that, have to go to CUH. Yes. Because, obviously, the ambulances will only go to the Mercy, and 9 times out of 10, the ambulances will head for CUH anyway, because the access is way better. Yes. So the plan was in the reconfiguration that they would build a hospital that would be have the access of the South Link. I think there was three places. One was Blarney. One was down the Quay somewhere. And I can't remember where the third one was. Okay. That never happened. Yeah. Slanchic here has so a plan in it for, for a hospital. To pick up all the slack yeah. for the whole from, we say, after 8 o'clock at night. Yeah. Yeah. Everything goes to CUH. And remember, not just not just Cork stuff, Kerry stuff, Waterford stuff, Tipperary stuff, exactly. it all comes to us that family. So what, what's the solution, Bar? Another hospital? Yeah. They could transfer somebody from Limerick that would be in Limerick, and Limerick is a fairly high-grade hospital as well, but they wouldn't have a trauma one. Everything is in, and we're very lucky in Cork to have yes. a unit like that, but they never mm. put the balance they never balanced it with the second hospital because what they did was they amalgamated the Mercy and the South Infirmary and obviously they were taking them out of the city centre because obviously access traffic wise and what have you for ambulances. Yeah. Do you have a heart attack or you have only seven minutes? Yeah. You know, they have to get there fairly fast. Yeah. You know, because well, obviously... What would, you, what would you say to longer. He was talking about consultants and public-only consultants and trying to develop no. a fully public... Can it, can it be done? No. Because, as I was saying earlier on when I was talking to your back staff on the, the phone, there's a, so a shortage of health professionals all over the world. 
So therefore, consultants, I'd imagine, CUH would not be on the top of their list. And it's not the fact for the people or whatever, it's the working conditions are absolutely atrocious in CUH. I'd be sorry for my colleagues that are, are still there because I don't know how they're going into work crying, they're coming out, they're trying their best, they're getting abuse, do you know? I mean, the staff that are working there don't like seeing people on chairs and trolleys either. Yeah. You know, because they're trained and their empathy would, you know, to try to do the best they can for them. But under the situations in CUH at the moment, that just cannot be done. If you were the Minister, Bear, what would you do? Well, I'd build that second hospital anyway, of course. No, it's not going to do it. It's not going to be a magic, yeah. a magic portion. Yeah. It's not going to happen overnight ease, either. It would ease the strain. Yeah. Because you would have a second 24-hour accident emergency, which would give well, the ambulance to think, once, once upon a time, well, I, I know it's, 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 sorry to call it cash, I know it's, it's a while ago, but once upon a time, we had <sighs> emergency departments in CUH. We had seven. We'd seven, you're right. Fin, CUH, Finbars, the South, the North, which is the gone Mer- anyway, right? The Mercy. The Mercy. Mallow. Mallow. We had all those. We had all those, yeah. And at the time, and it's a long time ago now, but younger listeners won't, won't remember this. At the time, people said you can't close all of them. Are they well, being... Are people being that I was at many a meeting, yeah. PJ, because I actually worked in the orthopaedic and I was at many of a meeting. And we told them that mm. it was a mistake to move um, the orthopedic out of the what is now known as uh, St. Mary's Campus. Yeah. Because the thing, the way the orthopedic ran as well, is obviously we had our own elective and we had our own. But we would keep, we would empty beds for CUH. Yeah. But the, that was only a bone hospital. Like if, if you had a burst yeah, appendix at 2 to, o'clock, they'd do nothing for you. We took transfers from CUH. Right. Normally, no, obviously, no no cardiac, no whatever. But obviously, normally, it would have been of the older generation where they would be waiting for a nursing home and instead of t- taking up a bed, I hate saying that because they're people. Oh, I know. They would have transferred them up to St. Mary's. Right. To the orthopaedic. And obviously, we would have looked after those people until... Right. They found a nursing home for them. You'd have provided interim step-down care for for them, yeah. Exactly. We were, it was kind of like, they never called it step-down care, but that's probably that's what the term, it actually though. was. That's the term they use now. But I think, you and I, I think you and I probably spoke before when I was covering the orthopaedic hospital and, and its future. Good to chat with you on the Opinion Line this morning. Thank you very much for your call. That's Bear, who's retired from HSE and said what David Cullinan is talking about. It's a fantasy because you simply can't do it. Um, under present circumstances, you simply couldn't do it. Thank you, Bear. 1850 715 Just a few more. Uh, I was in A&E a few weeks ago with a suspected clot in my leg. Arrived at 3.40. I suppose it was about an hour before I was called into the triage nurse. Then another hour for bloods. At around 7, I was taken to a pod at the back of A&E. Left sat on an uncomfortable chair all night long. No one came near me asking if I needed pain relief. No one examined my leg. Anything like that. At 7.30am, a doctor said, your bloods are clear. Sorry for the wait. Good looking. Goodbye. Yeah. As the lady said, the zero privacy there as well. There was a person in the pod to my right having an open wound examined for all to see. Crazy, crazy, crazy. 
Morning, I'm listening to poor Jessica. I'm not at all surprised. I've had two brain hemorrhages. I spent three days on a chair, put in a room, seven full days for a diagnosis. My staff were wondering, was I exaggerating? Taxi over to COH for MRIs while I was unable to walk. No family allowed travel with me. Thank God for GPs, because it wasn't until I was discharged two weeks later I got medication that relieved my pain for the first time. That's in the mercy. I PJ waited in COH a full day. Very sick. I've read that one before. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Oh, and look, Anne says, Hi, PJ. Jessica's story is appalling. With all the high-rise apartments being built in the western suburbs, there's no excuse for not building a proper multi-story high-rise in the A&E section of COH with proper cubicle beds. No public rep has tried to solve the trolley crisis. Then Jude says, I don't believe for a second they didn't get food. I'm working there, and that's hard to believe. Yeah. Just loads, just loads, just loads. 1850-715-996. In regard to the cinema, I'm not sure what you're getting at here, Dennis. Dennis says, did he find it funny that he was surrounded by people with no mask on and came out into a shopping centre with low densities of people, no one sitting down, and he had to wear a mask? You mean, did I mind going into the cinema where people were distanced by at least a metre and then take my mask off? To, well, I couldn't eat me popcorn without a mask anyway, Dennis. So that had to be done. Um, yeah, I came back out into something center. Do you know what? It is what it is. Simple. It just is what it is. You can go to the cinema now. It's not even... It's about three quarters full. Maybe even less. You sit in there. You book your seats. Look, it is what it is. Do you know? 1850 715 996. Can we just talk? The opinion line on Cork's 96 FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Access all areas on Cork's 96 FM. Your guide to nightlife on Leaside. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's Entertainment. The Right Here, Right Now Festival returns on November 12th to 14th to celebrate some of the country's finest music taking place at Cork Opera House in Collins. Now in its fourth year, Right Here, Right Now is a celebration of the vibrant and eclectic music scene in both Cork and Ireland with tickets on sale now from Cork Opera House box office. Access all areas. Mary Green, Fiona Kennedy and Anna Mitchell, Steve Cooney and Dermot Byrne are all set to perform as part of the upcoming Cork Folk Festival at the Triscoll this October. Further details can be found at CorkFolkFestival.com Access All Areas Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show, play, exhibition or gig coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us at aaa at 96fm.ie Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. Right, our beloved leaders have been speaking as they arrive at UCC for the Cabinet meeting. They've been talking about the National Development Plan. And kind of means little or nothing to you or me. It's, it's what they're going to build and what they're going to provide over the next 10 years. And they wrote one up in 2018. And then, of course, they changed government in 2020 and now it's a different government so they've taken it out and they've dusted it off and they've rewritten it and they've torn up a bit here and they've written a bit in there and they've kind of reheated it to see what's in the National Development Plan. As he arrived this morning at UCC for the Cabinet meeting, uh, the Taoiseach was uh, stopped by reporters including our own Katie O'Keefe. I think it's a significant day for the country because it reflects a very uh, substantial investment over the next 10 years um, in infrastructure, in public transport um, and indeed in, in, in roads. 
research, education, health and above all housing, uh, which is one of the biggest issues facing our country and facing our people. So what it essentially does, it lays out a roadmap for the next 10 years, which I think will encourage investment uh, and will give people a sense of um, a career in construction in particular, but also to those who want to invest in infrastructure in this country, a long lead in time. Delivery is going to be key uh, in, in relation to this, and that's something that we're very focused on in terms of getting projects delivered uh, on time and, and within budget going through due process, and that will be a key issue for us um, in terms of the, the, the full range of areas that are being covered um, by the National Development Plan, and obviously that involves building up capacity within the construction industry through skills, uh, additional uh, skills requirements, uh, re- uh, upskilling people in relation to construction, but also making sure uh, that we're saying to young people here there's a career in construction, and there's going to be huge invest- investment over the next 10 years. Uh, it would bring, a, bring on a lot of innovation in the construction sector as well. I think that's important in terms of giving that sort of confidence to that sector over a longer uh, time frame. Is guarantee that all the road projects in this will go ahead? Is the question mark over some of them? No, I think they, they, they'll go ahead. And as I said, delivery is key. I mean, there'll be lots of statutory processes. There's lots of planning processes and so on, which we know historically uh, has always created delays and so on. So the challenge for us is to make sure we can do this in as timely a manner as we possibly can. That's the key. There's no guarantee. Sorry, no guarantee. There's a full commitment to get these done, and the funding is there, and the funding is behind it. Thanks very much. All the roads that are in this, the government says it will deliver, even though the Greens want more public transport, more trains and buses instead of roads. But there's the Taoiseach saying that the roads will go ahead. I hear Paul Byrne pushing him on no guarantee, but he's just saying they will go ahead. On health, Minister Stephen Donnelly was talking to reporters ahead of the Cabinet meeting about where health fits in to the National Development Plan. It's a really important National Development Plan from the healthcare perspective. What we've got is a growing population. It's forecast to grow a lot and uh, life expectancy is going up. So the number of people who are older in the country is going to increase. The two of those combined mean there's going to be a very significant increase on demand in our healthcare system. So there's a lot of things we have to do at the same time. One of the things we have to do is change our model of care. So care for people in their home, in their community, in primary care settings as much as possible rather than going into hospital. And when they do need to go into hospital, make sure that we have enough capacity there. So for the hospital setting, what this NDP means is more beds, more operating theatres, more intensive care, uh, an awful lot of capacity. But critically as well, what it's allowing us to do is invest heavily in the community setting as well. You know, GP access to diagnostics, we can continue with that. Community settings, decongregation of the disability sector, very important to focus on mental health. So really, from the health perspective, that's what it's about. It's about two things. It's about building out the capital we need, including new hospitals, continuing with the, the children's hospital, the national maternity hospital, It means investing in cancer care, trauma care, maternity care and a lot of other things. And at the same time, as we change the system and reform the model of care, just building out the capacity that we need. So so it's it's a very good day. Uh, from a healthcare perspective for uh, patients or future patients uh, and it's a very good day I think for the people working in the system because uh, it's a it's a multi-billion euro investment in, 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 our, in our public healthcare system. I don't want to sound old and I don't want to sound cynical but I've heard quite a number of national development plans launched at this stage in my time and every single one of them is sold to us as being better than the one before and down the road a bit, we realise, well, actually, no, they, were, they weren't. But we'll see.
We'll see. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Cabinet meeting at UCC at the moment, and then they're going to launch the uh, new development plan, which is a rewrite of the 2018 one. They're launching that this afternoon. There's a psychotherapist called Katie O'Donoghue, an art psychotherapist, and Katie has written a new book called The Little Squirrel Who Worried. And it's a book that's designed to help kids struggling with anxiety. She joins me. Katie, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Thank you for having me on this morning. Delighted. Now, you are an art psychotherapist. Explain that to me first. What do that people do? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Of course. So, um, an art psychotherapist, it's a form of psychotherapy for anybody who's been to maybe a counsellor or a psychotherapist themselves. So, it's a psychological approach that incorporates uh, self-expression and reflection using creativity in many types of different forms. And what it does is... um, with the art psychotherapist, it helps the individual to uh, build their resilience, self-awareness, uh, emotional regulation and sense of self as well. Mm. So that's an, a little summary <laughs> of what looked, art psychotherapy you, you, is. You looked at the problem of anxiety in children and mm. it must, it's very frustrating and difficult for a parent to look at a child struggling with anxieties yeah. and not know where to start. So Completely. that's what it's for. It is really. I mean, it's a. I'm not saying it's the the be all and end all and the answer, but what it does is it gives a a very kind of simple framework of understanding exactly uh, for the child and for the parent or any other adult in um, the child's life what anxiety is, um, a bit of psychoeducation about how it presents in the body. Um, different sort of coping skills, uh, distraction techniques, relaxation, and also some thought, CBT-type thought challenging Mm. in helping children reframe some of those worrying thoughts that they may have. It's done in in the style of a book about farm or forest animals and the little squirrel Mm. hasn't been out in a long time and is now afraid to go out. That's the approach. It is. It is. And it was inspired because uh, last year I was um, I wasn't at home. I was living in the UK and um, I was working for the NHS uh, cams in the NHS and I was facilitating a group for parents. Um, it was an eight week course in which myself and another facilitator uh, gave parents sort of the tools and understanding of what anxiety is um, and how to support their child. Um, and so I myself was missing home at the time. It was in the, in the during the pandemic and the height of it. So I began illustrating the animals as a way to feel connected to home, really, um, and decided to put this, the story along with it, inspired by the group I've been facilitating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Your little characters like the squirrel, and he's got the wren and the snuffly hedgehog and the grey rabbit, Mister Fox. Of course, every every little kid loves hearing about animals like that. But I guess in in, 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 in a general thing, Katie. We're now at a point mm-hmm. where we're thankfully starting to come out of this blasted pandemic and, and get our normal lives back. But what we found is that some of the children are more traumatised by lockdown and isolation than we thought. Yes, um, I think probably this September or end of August was a big one for families and parents and children with the return to school. Um, it's been, I mean, lockdown, the pandemic has been incredibly hard on us all. But I think for children, um, it's 
definitely sort of, you know, made things difficult for them. And as uh, they might have returned to school, parents might have sort of noticed sort of separation anxiety or social anxiety or even sort of general anxiety. Um, so it, it, it's, yeah, it's very difficult um, for parents. And as you said, it's like just sort of finding where to start Um mm. We did it to because help we had, child. We did it because we had to, and and they mm-hmm. did it because we asked them to or told them to, and their teachers yeah. and their schools were closed and they had no choice. But for months they couldn't see Nana, they couldn't see Granddad, no. um, they they didn't know why, they didn't understand why. Sometimes they thought it was their yeah. fault, and all of that exactly. mounts up in a small in a small head. Exactly, and that's the thing. Sometimes if there's, I mean, it can be difficult depending on the age of the child, but having sort of communicating to the child, I guess, why we had to do this or to give them an understanding so that to ensure that they didn't feel that it was their fault because children have wonderful imaginations. But the problem is sometimes if if they haven't understood what we're communicating, they can imagine all different types of scenarios um, that we wouldn't sort of expect as adults at all. Sure. So um, it's about, and that's why even with, the children who might be experiencing anxiety at the moment, you know, even the physical symptoms for a child that's and for an adult, but it's incredibly scary. But a children, a child would have no awareness of why all of a sudden their heart is beating in their chest or they're feeling a bit breathless. And it's about normalizing that for them as well so that they can put a name on it and understand um, what exactly is happening to them. Um, because once they understand it, then that's sort of, the beginning of um, a way of, I guess, hopefully breaking that cycle of anxiety so that mm. they can, when they feel that they something might be happening or they're triggered, that they can use one of their coping skills or techniques to mm. sort of um, halt those feelings, those is, scary is, feelings is there, for is them. Is there a danger that if we don't watch them and help them very gently through it, that children will be left with long-term fear of, of, of what we might think irrational things? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I guess from mental health perspective in general, I think there, you know, there's a resounding concern that there may be long-term sort of potential uh, impact on children's well-being and mental health. But each child is very much an individual, and each, um, you know, every family is individual. But it's about uh, communication, and you know, life is very busy for us adults and. It's about trying to catch ourselves in those moments when, say, a child comes to us and, you know, seems a bit worried. And it can be very easy, not out of, a, you know, coming from a bad place, but we're just busy in the moment. And we might say, oh, go on and play there. You'd be grand. Yes. But it's sometimes just about catching that moment and, and really listening and just acknowledging that we can see and reflecting that, you know, they might be a bit worried about something. Mm. Uh, but then helping them by saying, well, what do you think we could do to help you feel a bit better about doing uh-huh. that? Help it helping them sort of have that internal monologue themselves. So say when they can't go to the adult for reassurance, um, that they can think to themselves, okay, you know, what can I do myself right now? And that's a learned thing. That doesn't come to us naturally. It's a skill skill set and it's up to us to help them to learn. It it. is. Where can people Mm -hmm. get your book, Katie? Yeah, so it's available in most bookstores across Ireland, but in Cork City, I believe Eason's have it, Waterstones, um, and some of the independent bookstores as well. But I checked this morning and they do have them <laughs> in stores, so if anybody would like to get a copy, 
Excellent. All right, listen, good luck with it and thank you for being with us on the Opinion Line. That's Katie O'Donoghue, an art psychotherapist. Her book is called The Little Squirrel Who Worried. It's a book written for anxious children and for parents who want to help them get through that anxiety. And a lot of the anxiety brought on by the rigours of having to stay inside and stay away from Nana and not be able to go to school and not be able to have your play dates and your your communions and all that. The book, as you said, is called The Little Squirrel Who Worried, available now. 1850 715996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie the lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. If we're going to run low on power... It'll happen when the weather is at its worst and by all accounts the forecast for October is nay good, nay good at all. Is that the official forecast? Alan O'Reilly from Carlow Weather is a little more optimistic about this week at least. I'll catch up with him in a wee while. I think I heard KC saying this morning that there was a risk of snow around the jazz weekend. That'd be early, very early for this country. We'll check all that out. On the subject of power supplies and whether we'll have them, did I hear right when a head of Electric Ireland was asked a question by the media that people would find it hard to pay their bills from all the increases and that this person said if people are struggling they can go to St Vincent de Paul? I'm sorry, but what good is that? It was an entitled comment at its best. I didn't hear that, but if that's what was said, then it is an entitled comment at its best. Another message, the government has decided that all houses must now run on electricity, no more coal fires, etc. Now they tell us the country can't supply enough electricity for the whole country. I live in the country. When the power goes out in storms or snow, we could be out for a week. So what do we use if we've no fuely fires, fuel fires to stay warm? Yeah, look, the days of the open fire are gone if the green agenda has its way. But at the end of the day, if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you've got no power... How else are you supposed to heat your house? Which is a very good point. And there'd be hundreds and thousands of people up and down the country like that. 1850-715-996. On supplies and supply chain, interesting one there about uh, Aldi. Somebody was in Aldi over the weekend. And I'll tell you something that I was advised over the weekend about supply chain and the Christmas rush. But first of all, I got about six of them in one day last week. And then another day you get none. And my poor mother is getting them. And the wife is getting them. And we're all getting them. James got one the other day on his phone. Had no idea what to do with it. He just ditched the call. These are scam calls. You know even by the code that they're scam calls. But they're getting dozens of them. And you pick them up and there's a message supposed to be from Revenue. And they're going on for months and months and months. And they come up on what looks like a perfectly legitimate mobile number. And now the Gardaí are asking the mobile phone providers to do something about this. Because people are being just driven, demented by them. Let's bring in Ronan Murphy 
smart tech, penetration testing and security. Ronan, good morning. Good morning, PJ. These are going on with the last few months. I got half a dozen in one day. What's the story? Yeah, so the, these are what we refer to as robocalls, right? So they're they're effectively they're computers which are um, mass targeting mobile numbers. Um, and obviously, the goal of these is to get people to answer and to uh, and to run through the process and ultimately try and scam them. Um, I think the big question everyone is asking is 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 why can't they just be stopped by you know Tree and Vodafone and the various different um, operators that are out there? But the problem you have is that the the old traditional telephone lines, which were familiar with over the last number of years we've seen a convergence of the internet what many people many of our listeners will know as VoIP voice yeah. over IP um, and the traditional telecom lines so you have the convergence of two worlds and unfortunately that will look for fortunately that brings many benefits but it also brings um, risks and this is one of the very prevalent risks we're now dealing with where scammers have figured out ways to mass target um, uh, populations based on um, mm. d- targeting their mobile phones like it, it and they look like well some of them do anyway they look like a perfectly legitimate call uh, disguised sometimes disguised as a, as quite a familiar number yeah, it's called spoofing. So there's a number of different ways they do it. But, um, they, they, the main ways they spoof a number. So as quickly as they spin up that number to try and contact you, that number is gone the following day. Um, and I mean, there's, there's, there's a limitless amount of different scams that they're trying from revenue to Amazon to FedEx to DHL to the, the Gardaí and so forth. And everyone has, has, <laughs> has ultimately the goal of trying to extract yeah. money out of you but they do it in different ways you know and lot, lots of them then obviously if you if you click through the robo call itself you, you'll get through to a call center yes where you've got you you know you've people sitting on the other end of the line who are going to try and get your get your details off you yeah i did that actually one day i got the amazon one the, the robo call yes and i, I yes, decided yes. right i'm going to click through now because i know this is a racket and i clicked yeah. through and they were looking for money off me for correct, something correct. i don't have and i know i don't have it So I was absolutely certain I don't have it. So I played them and played them and played them. They were looking to take 60 euro off me for something I didn't have. Well, the 60 euros isn't the real problem. The real problem is is they want to get data or want to do one of two things. They want, well, maybe three things. They want to get 60 euros off you, but they want to. They typically want you to download some sort of application onto your 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 laptop or your phone, um, and then obviously they'll try and take control of your online banking and so forth. Um, uh, so, so I mean, they, they have a number of different avenues that they try and use to to ultimately um, get their hands on your money. Mm. So, how can we? First of all, how can the mobile phone companies do anything about this? Because they come up as a genuine oh eight seven, oh eight six, oh eight three, whatever. How can the mobile phone companies help out here? Yeah, so it, it, it is a big problem to solve, right? And and the issue, the big issue here is that it's not it's not geo specific, so it's not just Ireland, right? You need kind of a global consensus on this because remember, most of these scams are coming from overseas anyway, right? And um, they have started after several years of planning and work in this in the US. 
they have started implementing um, technologies there, given that everyone's talking about James Bond. No, the, 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 the specific technology is, is stir shake and it's called yeah. shake and not stirred. But um, and effectively, it's putting an onus on the tel- telecom operators to validate the numbers and verify the numbers before they're handed off to the end user. Um, while that sounds easy, in fact, it's not. It does work, but it's a very big, significantly um, uh, complex endeavour to get that done and get it set up. So, but is, I, it, I is that along that the lines the, of running that? So, so the the, the robocall is made, but before it's put through to my phone, my phone provider has checked whether it's a dud call and rejected it if it is. Correct, and just think of the complexity of that because you you you've you've hundreds of millions of people using voice over the internet which is completely legitimate so that the sheer scale and challenge of doing it is enormous and plus you you need buy-in from all of the other jurisdictions globally who are on the internet because they all have to play their part in this conundrum as well you know so mm-hmm. so that, that's the challenge that those guys face i guess the challenge for the general public is awareness um obviously everyone knows this is happening um specifically more vulnerable people in our community have to be made aware of this um if they don't recognize the number don't answer it you have voice never give out personal information over the phone um, mm. or if somebody's contacted you online um, and look it's it's generally PJ it's awareness because yeah. this stuff is I mean it's gone absolutely bonkers yeah. you know there's one I've gotten a few of in the last uh, week or so it coming from an 038 prefix now I looked that yeah. up I googled that and that said to me that's a scam yeah, well, they've, they've, they've another very clever way of doing it where they'll ring you and they'll hang up and then you ring the number back. But that's a premium number. Yeah. So that could cost, you know, could cost 20 bucks if you call it back. Right. And that that's actually one where these guys are making an awful lot of money on. It's where people just ring the number back and the minute they ring it back, they'll see on their, their bill that they've been charged, you know, uh, an obscene amount of money for a quick telephone call. Yeah. So, I mean, these guys, there's so many different ways to catch you. Um if you if you see a number, you don't recognise it, never call it back. You have voicemail, make sure it's enabled and if it's important enough they'll they'll either they'll they'll let you a voicemail message or they'll call you back. Yeah. In general we kinda have to we kinda have to become hyper vigilant, don't we, Ronan? And if you don't know the number, either reject or definitely don't call back. A healthy degree of paranoia never hurt anyone, PJ, I would say. <laughs> oh, by the way, yeah, one thing. You say don't ring back because you're going... But answering that first call that lasts 20, 30 seconds, will that cost you anything? No, you're not going to get caught by answering the actual call. Like, obviously, it's better you don't engage with these people yes. at all. But answering it is no problem. Um, it's the ones where they ring you and they immediately hang up and then you ring the number back. They're the ones that you will get charged the premium rate, uh, sub- the, the, the call subscription on, you know. Effectively, you just can't trust what's coming up on your phone these days. And, Ever and, trust and they, anything. They can inter- impersonate a friend's number. Yeah, very easily. I mean, you could. I could do it to you right now. You can. You can go online. You can download a call spoofing uh, application, and you can. You can send people text messages, and they can pop up on their phone as whatever you want. And that's. Very, I mean, that's been around for forever. Mm. Um, so that's that's very easily done. You can buy this offer for about you know thirty euros. So it's um yeah it's 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 easily done. There's nothing overly sophisticated about that. Like you said, healthy skepticism. Don't answer any numbers that you don't know at the moment, and certainly don't ring back. If someone rings you from a number that you don't recognise and you happen to answer it and they are gone after 10 seconds, do not ring it back. 
if they want if they want you bad enough they'll ring you again uh, my Netflix account was hacked four new profiles and upped my premium and locked my account yeah it's happening right left and centre now here's one um, people are talking about supply chain we, we heard from Rob this morning that coffee price of coffee is going to be badly affected by supply chain the price of building materials is gone through the flipping roof lads it's gone mad altogether again because of supply chain we know what's happening with petrol in the UK that's got nothing to do well little or nothing to do with Brexit partially to do with Brexit but there's a global shortage of truck drivers there's a huge shortage of truck drivers which means there's a global slowdown in haulage so nothing is getting anywhere anytime fast Uh, good morning PJ I just wanted to mention as I think it's a bit strange Three weeks in a row now, I've been shopping at Aldi and they haven't had tin foil on the shelves. They say it's flying out the door. Just wondering why this would be. People stocking up the tin foil for the Christmas turkey might be part of it because over the weekend someone said to me, um, you know the way you always order your turkey in early December from the butcher? Uh-uh. Put your name in now. Put your name down now. If you, if you, if you get your turkey or ham from the butcher put your name down today like because supplies are going to be tight um, at at Christmas particularly if you get frozen turkeys supply chain is goosed lads and it's got nothing to do with Brexit or little or nothing to do with Brexit we have I was reading one of the papers was it Friday the Daily Mail had 4,000 were 4,000 drivers short in Ireland Britain is something like 80 or 90,000 drivers short at the moment. And and they have 54,000 applications for driver's licences held up in their driver's licence system. They have the army taking out petrol uh, today. I don't think we'll get there, but it's going to get tight. There was a... Actually, I was noticing recently... You know, I've, is it just me? Is it very hard to get bananas now in a lot of places? I like a banana here of a morning. I have a couple of them with me every day. And trying to get fresh bananas in the supermarkets is quite difficult at the moment. 1850 Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie we all love Irish music and the artists that make it. The last 18 months have been devastating for this industry and we want to play our part to help. Cork's 96 FM is proud to support Irish Music Month by promoting the amazing work of Irish artists. Across the country, independent radio with Hot Press is spotlighting Irish music and paying Irish artists over €95,000 to play and perform for us. We're committed to promoting Irish music. Are you? Irish Music Month on Cork's 96FM is supported by the BAI Sound and Vision Fund and XL Retail, offering a great deal more at your local store. Cork's 96FM. Rwanda Premier League live back this Saturday on 96FM.ie with Trevor Welsh, powered by Talk Sport. Live coverage of all the big games. You can stay tuned for that. The Premier League live online with now stream live Premier League action with the now Sports or Sports Extra membership. Your sport on your terms. 
streaming only the games that matter to you most with now. And listen Saturday at 96fm.ie or the Cork's 96fm app. I have wonderful news about someone who was on the show last week, someone who was quite upset when they were on the show last week. I have wonderful news about them uh, before we quit at 12. But I want to talk about a new podcast which has been... Uh, launched by MS Ireland. We've talked over the last few months to quite a number of people affected by multiple sclerosis and affected by multiple sclerosis at different ages of their life. And we've learned that it is no longer a disease. Well, it never was. We didn't. It's not a disease of the elderly. It's not a disease of, of even the even the middle aged. It can be a disease in very very young people, and it can strike at any time, and with any different level of severity. And there are many different ways to to get through it and to live with it. And it affects lots of people in different ways. And MS Ireland have put together this podcast. Uh, Laura, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Now, you're from, you you have MS, don't you? I sure do. Okay. When did you discover that? Um, I first got sick, PJ, in 2010. Um, I started to experience a range of symptoms. It started off as kind of a pins and needles sensation down one side of my body Mm -hmm. and that kind of swiftly turned into very, very severe numbness around the the entirety of my body. And at the time, PJ, I was diagnosed with what's called transverse myelitis, which just meant that there was an area of inflammation in my spine. Mm -hmm. Um, So I recovered from that kind of slowly but surely. I was very, very unwell, um, but recovered from it fully over the course of a few months. And then in 2012, started to experience some of the same symptoms. And it was then that I was diagnosed with MS. And you made me ask you what age you were then? Not at all. I was only 23. Good Lord. That's very young. Yeah, it was. But look, that's the reality, BJ. I think, you know, myself included, people think that MS is an illness that affects older people. And the reality is that the the vast, vast majority of people who are diagnosed are in their 20s and 30s. Um, So that certainly came as a big shock to me. But um, that is that is the reality, actually, of MS. How do you take on board and process a diagnosis like that at 23? God, with great difficulty, to be honest, PJ. Um, look, I'm kind of 10 years later now, so I've had a lot of time to get to grips with life with MS. I've seen what my life is like, um, but it was incredibly tough. You know, I was, as I said, I was 23. I, um, I had just started a PhD. I was in a new relationship. You know, it was kind of a major transitional period in my life as it was. And then, you know, the rug was just completely pulled out from under me when I got this um, diagnosis. I don't think anything can prepare you mm. for a diagnosis you know, you know like that there had been no history of neurological illness within my family um, which might have kind of given me an indication that maybe something was coming down the line for me and even you know when I had been unwell in 2010 there had kind of been some minor questioning about neurological disease and MS was mentioned but you know I certainly didn't think that I was going to two years later be diagnosed you know so it came as a major, major shock. But look, as I said, I've had a lot of a lot of time now um, to to understand my illness, to see what my life is like. 
with it. You know, I have a tremendous support network, which have been um, really crucial in 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 supporting me um, in in living life with MS. Um, and I've also had the opportunity to meet, you know, a ton of other young people um, with MS, which has also been um, a great support. How's your health now? How I mean, how is it affected you this, these days? Um, I'm very lucky. Um, my MS has thus far taken a very mild course. Um, so I consider myself to be very, very well. My MS certainly does affect me um, at times, um, but I'm fortunate to, to be very well. I think to kind of you know, people are people are usually quite surprised to learn that I have MS. I don't really um, I present with any visible symptoms, but then MS is most often an invisible illness, yes. as we call yes. it. So, yes. you know, I think sometimes even a person with a more severe form of the disease, you may not necessarily know um, just by looking at them or, or speaking to them, um, and that's just that's the nature yeah. of of this illness. So you have um, you've contributed to this this podcast, which is a super idea. But what was the idea behind it? So I suppose the idea behind the podcast is that it's an opportunity to kind of get that dual perspective on um, MS. So in the three episodes of the podcast, you hear from people living with MS like myself, but you also hear from a range of healthcare experts who deal with um, MS in their professional practice. So um, there are uh, psychologists, neurologists, um, a range of people who can provide that kind of clinical um, perspective on of on the illness. Um, and I suppose, PJ, look, the idea um, from MS Ireland was to give people living with MS, um, you know, resources that are easily accessible to them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of misinformation, to be honest, out there um, available online that I don't think um, necessarily helps people living with MS. So this is just, you know, a kind of hopefully an accurate and realistic and supportive sure. um idea of kind of what life with MS is like for people, both with MS and for our loved ones, for people who might just be interested in learning Absolutely. more. So it's three episodes on, on all the usual platforms. It's available now, is it? That's it. It absolutely is. Yeah, um, there are three episodes. If you Google MS Explored, it should come up. It's on the MS Ireland website. Um, my own episode talks about kind of life with MS, generally speaking. There's one that talks about work and education and there's one about family life with MS and they're all available now. OK. All right, Laura, thanks very much. That's Laura Lee, one of the participants in a new podcast, MS Explored, created by MS Ireland in partnership with Novartis Ireland and available on all platforms at the moment. Brilliant. Thanks a million, Fiona. Cheers. That's okay. Cheers. 1850-715-996. Will I tell you, as I said, with someone on the show here last week who was very upset uh, and uh, very troubled and very worried, and we have a little bit of news about them. I'll hold it for a while. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Uh, Gillian was on to say that she was listening to us speaking about MS. Uh, Gillian was also diagnosed with MS at the age of 21, is now 26 with two kids, would like to help in any way she can 
to raise money. And uh, yeah, she also Gillian spoke to us during the summer about her own MS, and thanks for that. Yeah, the MS Ireland website is www.ms-society.ie www.ms-society.ie and there's a section on fundraising if you want to help you. I will keep that little bit of it's beautiful news actually about someone who was on the show last week who's really was upset and uh, got brilliant news at the weekend and shared it with us. We're so delighted uh, to uh, to hear it. Now we've talked a lot about trauma. People have said, look, this whole pandemic, COVID, lockdown, case staying at home, being stuck within two kilometres, maybe getting sick, worst case scenario, losing someone you love to COVID or to something related to COVID or getting very sick yourself from being in the hospital. It's all traumatic. It's all a form of trauma. And the whole lockdown, people are now calling it traumatic But sometimes our trauma, the best way to deal with our trauma is to look back to our childhood and to how we grew up because trauma starts when you're small and we all have traumas in our lives from when we're small and how we deal with them then helps us to deal with them now. And some people deal with life's traumas very well, others don't deal with them that well at all and we're all very, very different Katie O'Donoghue is a life coach and joining me from Manly Beach in Australia. Good evening, Katie. Hi, TJ. How are you? How are you? How are, what time of the day or night is it in Manly Beach in Australia? <laughs> it's half nine, so I'm in my pyjamas talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> There's an image I can't get out of my head. Katie, um, so, so life coaching in Australia, how did that come about? Before we get on to trauma. Um, It's a bit of a funny story, I'll be honest with you. Um, I had been thinking about doing life coaching for quite some time. I did psychology as part of my first degree in college, and now pursuing a full degree in psychology as of this year. But when I moved away to Australia, I, first of all, didn't really know what I was going to do. And then I applied to a lot of jobs thinking that I was just going to go into, you know, corporate or what I would call a quote unquote normal job. And I ended up unemployed for 10 months through the pandemic, bit of a shock to the system. Mm. And during that time, I decided to hire a life coach myself and to figure out, you know, what I was good at, what I could do in terms of my strengths, what my weaknesses were and how I could create a life and a job that, you know, brought a lot of uh, fulfillment to me, essentially, and happiness. And I decided to go into coaching. And a lot of that kind of stemmed, you know, from my own personal experiences that I've been through over the years and how I kind of coped through everything. Mm. And, you know, part of that was, you know, understanding how to cope through trauma. Now, I'm not a trauma expert, so I speak from lived through experiences, but it is something that, you know, I am quite interested in and I do want to pursue it, you know, after my psychology degree, I want to make a career out of it. Why specific? I mean, your own... It's, it's, it, it stems from your own life experience, the interest in trauma. Yeah. Um, so like trauma can be anything from, you know, a breakup or a job loss or the pandemic, like you said earlier, or, you know, putting on weight or a family divorce, losing a friendship, failing an exam. They're all forms of trauma. It doesn't have to be this massive, 
you know, public accident. That's what people call a capital T trauma. But trauma is just, you know, anything that can cause like an emotional response within you, a disruption. And it creates an imbalance in your nervous system, essentially. So it just basically affects you in a negative way. And it's about, you know, understanding how to cope through those times is what kind of sparked my interest in coaching and, you know, obviously a career in psychology as well. But I've gone through a lot of those kind of experiences over the years. And if I'm to be completely honest, I didn't always handle them well. And it's only been in the last couple of years that I really learned how to cope through them. But, you know, life is messy. You're living a human being experience. You're always going to have something challenging happen. And it's about, you know, being in a position where you're able to cope through the challenges at the end of the day. Mm. Do you want to talk to me about some of the things that shaped you into the person you are now, trauma-wise? Yeah, sure. I'm like, (laughs) where to start? (laughs) I suppose, like you say, you know, a lot of it does start in your childhood. And for many years, I will say, I did feel a lot of shame about talking, you know, about my background because I am what you call an ACOA. So I come from a home where there was we'll say an unsafe environment because of an alcohol disorder. And that brought a lot of lessons over the years, a lot of challenges on an emotional level. But I also went through challenges with friendship groups, with romantic relationships. I didn't get into college the first time around, failed an exam, was in a public traumatic accident as well, unemployed over here for 10 months through a pandemic. So (laughs) if you take your pick of which one to go into, I... I don't really mind which one we talk about. Tell me what an ACOA is, Katie. What's that? I never heard that one before. Um, it's an adult child of an alcoholic parent. Okay. Okay. So, which is quite a stigmatized topic in society, I believe, because, you know, since becoming a coach, I have connected with a lot of women who have come from a similar background and they feel like it's almost, you know, something wrong or shameful to talk about. And, you know, a lot of people look at people who come from that kind of a background sometimes as being, quote unquote, different. Yeah. And you feel different unless you do the work on yourself and learn to understand why certain events happened and how, you know, everyone actually has trauma. You know, it's not just you, you know, generations above you have their own traumas that they need to deal with. And we're very lucky our generation because, you know, psychological health isn't as stigmatized as it was in previous generations. Because we always think that, you know, uh, an alcoholic in the house is very damaging for for small children. But an adult child, we we might dismiss that when we say, well, you're getting on with your own life. But having an alcoholic in the house as an adult has its own different set of effects, I, I suspect. I mean, it does bring a lot of challenges, but, you know, I don't have any, let's say, um, negative emotions towards, you know, that person in my life. But I see it kind of more from a compassionate angle, because often when there's an addiction, it's because there's pain. Yeah. And if you ask, you know, why the pain, it kind of opens up a different angle and a different conversation. Yeah, because pretty much every addict that there ever was that didn't wake up one morning and decide I'm going to be an addict. There's always there's always a backstory. 
and sometimes it's a very sad story. When you come out of that sort of a, a, a um, formation, formative years, how does it affect you then outside, Katie, coming from the trauma of, like you say, being an ACOA? How does it affect you outside and how do you learn to deal with that? Well, I'll be honest, you know, I guess because I witnessed addiction within the home, I had my own troubles over the years with, you know, substance abuse. And when I took a look at my own experiences, it was because I was, you know, dealing with not feeling good enough, feeling like a failure in life, not being able to handle my emotions because, you know, all of my addictions, whether it was to sugar, to exercise, to food, to substances, um, it was all a way that I was trying to regulate my emotions. Right. And if you don't know how to regulate your emotions in a healthy way, then you're probably going to turn to something that, you know, helps you self-soothe. So mm. when I came from, even. you know, yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it, it is a lot to do with, you know, what you go through. And so if you can just, face the fear and understand, you know, what is causing you pain, you can heal. And it's just about getting the right support networks around you um, to help you through that process. But I don't see any shame around it because Mm. at the end of the day, you define yourself and, you know, you understand life in a different way by going through those experiences. Now it's not to justify what, you know, you went through or, various forms of behaviors it's just exploring that relationship and this isn't you know shame or blame it's just exploring the ways that you learned to relate to others but also relate to yourself one of the things our our home life our formative years growing up are supposed to teach us is coping and if you came from the background you come from you didn't have the opportunity to learn coping so that can be fairly disastrous then when you're making your own way in the world isn't it Yeah, I can. And when I look back at it, you know, I do believe that learning how to have healthy relationships and how to deal with your emotions or mental health is something that, you know, should be considered to be maybe an elective or an option in school. Um, Because at at the time that everything kind of started to happen for me, I was 14. Right. And I started drinking at 14 to cope with what was going on. Right. Trying to block and, it out. You know, that's, yeah, but it's kind of, you know, it was almost like I saw it as normal because everyone else was drinking. So I saw nothing wrong with it. And when you think about it, you know, when people go through breakups or they have a stressful day at work or, you know, there's a grievance in the family or some form of stress, a lot of the time people just say, oh, I'll have a drink. Yeah. And that's kind of how it starts. Right. And that's how it started for me. Um, I found that, you know, it was almost like any form of emotional distress. I was turning to drink. Right. From 14. And yeah. So even like feeling like it couldn't fit into it, friendship groups, um, not being able to get the college course that I wanted. I felt like, you know, it made me feel really low in myself. And because it's not really talked about, you know, how you're feeling. I mean, if you have a conversation with people, A lot of the time it's a focus on, you know, your love life or your job. It's very rare that someone will start off saying, how are you actually feeling emotionally or mentally? Yeah. Yeah. We all say, how are you feeling? Ah, sure, I'm fine. No, no. How are you actually feeling? Yeah. 
And a lot of the time we don't want to talk about it because if we're to be honest, you know, people want to have that perfect life, that perfect relationship, that perfect image. Mm. No one wants to hear about the elephant in the room or the ugliness of what's going on behind closed doors. Actually, there's a the thing, um, you know, the way you, you say to someone, um, how are you doing? Ash, I'm fine. I'm grand. And you know that they're not. How should we actually maybe ask the second question, which comes with maybe, you know, the, the hand placed gently on the arm. Are you okay, really, like, and offer the invitation to, to share more? Or do you accept, I'm grand, if you know what I'm trying to ask. I, yeah, I mean, a lot of the time the response could be keeping busy as well. And that's another way to kind of look at life is keeping busy yeah. seen as a good thing. And if you're not busy, what does that mean about you? Yeah. Are you deemed un- unsuccessful? Yeah. For example, mm. you know, so I do think there's an element of empathy, but again, it's about creating a safe space for people to open up and to express themselves. And that safe space comes about from having, you know, healthy relationships, safe relationships, secure relationships. Mm. So how, how are you now? Um, at, at this point in your life? Yeah, I'm doing really good. What I will say is that, you know, even though I went back to college at 28, which the younger version of me would have been thinking, oh my God, going back to college at 28, that's, you know, that's not successful. That's not, you know, having a life filled with purpose. But for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm the happiest I've ever been because. I'm ticking off goals that I had from a very young age and I've worked on myself quite a bit. And I know that, you know, whatever happens in life, I'm going to be okay because I've got me. Mm. What are the goals you've ticked off that you didn't think you'd ever be able to take off? <laughs> Examples. Um, moving, <laughs> moving away to a country that, you know, brought me a lot of joy when I traveled to it in 2017 um, pursuing a career in psychology, um, coaching being a stem of that for now. And, you know, becoming more mindful because I used to go to the beach as a young child and that was something that brought me a lot of joy and pleasure. And now I live by the beach and I go to the beach every morning and every uh, evening if the weather is nice. And you're making me jealous. Now you're making me jealous. <laughs> <laughs> That's not my intention. <laughs> I know I'm only messing with you. And what, like, as a matter of interest, just seeing as I'm talking to someone in Australia, how how is life for you COVID-wise? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of strange because I prefer the slow life after always living a busy lifestyle. But it is, you know, strange is what I would say. There is a great community where I live in Manly. It's very welcoming. Um, it kind of feels like a little bit like home, but on the other side of the world in a strange way yes. <laughs> you know like you go into a shop or a ca- the local cafe and you know the person's name and that's kind of what reminds me of being back in Cork is that people are so welcoming here so I feel like that's really helped um, not being able to obviously travel beyond the 5k or being able to fly home brings its own challenges but yeah. you're you know, locked down at the moment what you, you focus on you're locked down yeah we are yeah okay Um, But again, it's about mindset and what you can focus on, you know, what can you do instead of what what can't you do? 
It's yeah. about that's you a, know changing the way you look at things. That's kind of what got us through a lot of the tough times here too. Listen, I wish you well, Katie, and it's great to speak with you. Katie O'Donoghue, speaking to me from Manly Beach in Australia. Mind me to give her that bit of lovely, lovely news uh, before we finish. But I've got two... Well, the author of... A, she, it's her second book. Her first book was called Time for Bed, Fred. And it was named as a New York Times book review editor's choice. And now, Specs for Rex is the latest book from Yasmin Ishmael. Yasmin, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Congratulations. Specs for Rex sounds to me like a little book aimed at a young child who is struggling to deal with the news that he has to wear glasses. I know it's it's a it's a funny thing, but you know, for me, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't want to have to wear glasses again. But you know, as an adult, you you just you just deal with it, and you go, oh well, well that's going to happen. Yeah. But for kids, these little tiny changes, there's such a big impact on their lives. Well, and, uh, I can, I I can remember to, uh, I can remember being being put into glasses, as it were, when I was about seven, and I oh, was traumatized by it. So <laughs> I can identify very much with this. And that's the thing, actually, is that, I mean, you say identify, it is your identity, it's your face. And you've gone seven years with that and then suddenly you're putting glasses on them. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it can be uh, difficult for kids to adjust, mm. as and we've seen in the last couple of years as well. Yes, indeed. So the books are about learning to live with who you are and what makes you unique. Um, I would say, yeah, absolutely. But also celebrating that difference. And... And not hiding it, because it's not about hiding anymore. Now, uh, there, there should be a joy in the difference rather than um, a, a fear of it. Mm. And I think for kids, they're so afraid of, of, of being different themselves and wanting to fit in. Yes. Um, books can really help them to, uh, to come to terms with that. Actually, that's, that's I think, even, I'd, I'd hate to be a kid again, because I think it's even harder for them now to fit in. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's really difficult, and and I mean, my son, he's five now, and and I find that he has so many worries, and friendships are so difficult to mm. cultivate. They they have no tools, and this is the age when they need that guidance, and a lot of that guidance comes from books. Do you think they're worrying at five about things that really they shouldn't be worrying about till they're about twenty five? Oh God, definitely, certainly, certainly, the last couple of years. I think they hear everything on the news. There's a constant news feed. Parents, grandparents, adults, they're all talking about, you know, coronavirus. Even me now talking about it on the radio. And they can't get away from it. I think also with social media, maybe not such a young age now, but certainly there's a lack of... Childhood is being squeezed into such a small space. Yeah, they grow up way too fast. they grow up way too fast. They have access to the technology and and it's hard not to be influenced by these things. So, yeah, I think maybe there's too much for them. There's already a lot for them. Yeah. So where can they get your books? Specs for Rex and Time for Bed, Fred. Where can we get your books? You can get my books at all good bookstores and certainly the libraries. I would say always support your library. And if the kids don't like it, they can always find something new and yeah, you're not out of pocket. So, um, yeah, definitely check out the libraries. And, of course, if you're not near a library, which I doubt, uh, you can always order online. 
Okay. What is it? Hodges, Fitches, Waterstones, all of that. Okay. All right. Specs for Rex is the new book, and the other book was Time for Bed, Fred, from Yasmin Ismail. Thanks being, for, for being with us on the Opinion Line. Now, news for you. Anne was on the show last week. Remember, Anne was terribly upset, living in a hotel since February with her little daughter. Daughter isn't very well, and she hates it there, and she really wanted to get out. Well, we had contact afterwards with the offer of a house. It'll be ready in about six weeks' time. They've been in touch, and Anne and her lovely little girl will be moving to a a new home very, very soon. Isn't that the most wonderful news to start our new week with? Brilliant news. That's it. The programme edited by Fiona Corker and produced and researched by Fergal Barry. See you tomorrow just after nine. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. See MIG.ie.